Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, an extra episode as part of our climate series. We're talking to David King, who was Chief Scientific Advisor to the Blair and Brown governments. He was Britain's Climate Ambassador at the Paris Climate Accords. And we're talking about Extinction Rebellion, Refreezing the Poles and Saving the Planet. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. We are just a few months over three years since the Paris Climate Conference and the Paris Climate Accords, and we're going to talk about what's changed since then. But if you just take us back, because you were heavily involved, um, you were there, and you were instrumental in what came out of that conference. At the time, how big a success did you feel it was? How important an event did the, the Paris Climate Agreement feel in December 2015? It was a giant step forward because we had been struggling for so long to get an international agreement that had any bite to it at all. So if I take you back to Copenhagen, where the agreement was all built around the Kyoto Principle, which goes back to the beginning of these uh, discussions, I wrote a blog before, and it ended up as an editorial in several newspapers saying Copenhagen could not be a success. The reason was very simple. The United States president, as much as he wanted to sign up, and that was Obama, couldn't possibly do it because it was a top-down agreement that was trying to be reached in which every country would be told how much they should reduce their emissions by over what period of time. And his Senate and Congress had not approved. In fact, I think there were only ever two votes in favour of reaching the Kyoto Agreement. So we had a complete failure in Copenhagen, which caused quite a big setback for the climate change process. So we had to rebuild after Copenhagen and we get to the, the point of Paris, we had to bite our lips and move away from a top-down agreement to an agreement in which each country was given the right to determine what its contribution would be to reducing emissions of greenhouse gases. And this meant the President of the United States could come on board. We all knew that, and it was the only reason we abandoned the top-down process. But this bottom-up process, we arrived at 197 nations agreeing to it. And of course, some of those nations were making very few promises to manage their greenhouse gas emissions. But nevertheless, we had a global agreement. And that agreement, if I can encapsulate it in what I think were the three most important elements. The first, we should aim towards not exceeding if possible, 1.5 degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial level going forward in time, and in any case, much less than 2 degrees. And if I can pause on that for a moment and just say where the British government came in, at a meeting of the Pacific Nations Forum, ahead of the Paris meeting, we all met in Papua New Guinea, 
And it was at that meeting where there was a confrontation between the Prime Minister of Australia and the Prime Minister of New Zealand. Prime Minister of Australia, his speech was essentially Pacific Island nations don't worry directly about climate change, grow your economies, and then you can do whatever is needed. And the New Zealand Prime Minister simply said, I agree with my colleague. The Pacific Island premiers, every single one of them, were just aghast at this because many of them could see their island's nations going underwater. Well, you can't adapt when you disappear. Right. So I quickly got the High Commissioner to the Fiji Islands to run off and get a call through to number 10 and say, Sir David wants to change the British position to support them on the 1.5 degrees. And that, that was the initial move towards 1.5 degrees, came from that meeting. The Australian Prime Minister left the meeting in a bit of a rush, got in his private plane, and by the time he landed in Australia, he had lost his job. That was Tony Abbott. (laughs) That happened in Australia. (laughs) So that's how we got to 1.5. That's how we got to 1.5. Let me just emphasise, every nation agreed to that 1.5 figure. We then had every nation contributing what it could. We hadn't been able prior to this meeting to add up what those contributions meant. But we could already see this was still on a three to four degree centigrade world before the end of the century. But the third part of the agreement that I thought was critically important was, and this would be reviewed so that we could match these two commitments going forward. And 2020 is the deadline date for that review. So three and a bit years is a long time in politics. We know. A week is a long time. Three years is a very long time. We have a different American administration. Britain has been overtaken by Brexit, which has more or less crowded out all other considerations. So the the politics has changed. But also we know more about the climate since then. But can we take those in two stages? So in a sense, it's a slightly unfair question. But given that Paris was geared to making it possible for the Americans to come on board, if you had known what was coming next, would you have, I mean, not you, but generally, do you think a different approach would have been adopted? Or is is this still, in a sense, the best that we could have hoped for? I think it was the best we could have hoped for. I don't think any other agreement was possible because what was very clear, and this was clear at Copenhagen, if the United States doesn't sign, China had said we won't sign. If the two world's biggest emitters, by far, don't sign, the the agreement was meaningless. So we have at least got an agreement. And with the United States taking the position that they will withdraw, Trump said he has withdrawn, he can't withdraw until 2020. If they do withdraw, the rest of the world still feels we all have to act. This isn't a problem that can just be abandoned because it is critical for the future of humanity. So I think that around the world there's still a lot of action, but there is now a real lack of leadership. Obama played that role during his second period in the presidency, Prior to that, I would say Tony Blair was the first major leader to step up to the plate. That was critically important. What what Blair managed to do was to say, we in Britain will reduce our emissions by 
80% by 2050, regardless of negotiations. We know we can't solve the problem. We're only 2 to 3% of the world's emissions. But nevertheless, because it's a threat to us, and by the way, we are an island nation too, we're threatened heavily by rising sea levels. If we can say what every nation should do, that was our principle, we can negotiate much more strongly. Now, the British government did more to achieve the Paris Agreement, I would say, than all other governments put together. We also created, and interestingly, this was David Cameron creating an international climate fund with initially £4.5 billion in it, and then he added another £4 billion in the run-up to the Paris Agreement. So the, the British position internationally was seen to be absolutely clean-handed. On the question of the 1.5, so as you say, what, what you got out of Paris was on the one hand a target, and on the other hand a set of commitments that are clearly quite a long way short of that target. And then over time, the hope was through this iterated process, the gap would narrow. What do you feel in the three years since about the target now? Because there's, of course, there's a question about how we're going to get governments, and we'll come on to that, how we're going to get governments to change behaviours, including their own behaviour. Does the 1.5 target still look to you like it's in the right place? Or have we learned in the last three years more about the, the pace of climate change that makes even that potentially dangerous? What we have learned is that actually the predictions, in particular, of a Cambridge scientist, Peter Wadhams, had already been saying we are losing ice in the Arctic at an unprecedented rate. And when the Arctic Ocean is, during the Arctic summer, is open, no longer covered by ice, that region of the planet is going to heat up very rapidly. This is exactly what is now happening. And this is happening at, we're just over one degree above pre-industrial yes. averages, aren't we? So we're, we're about half a degree below the target, and it's happening now. That's right. And just to quickly say, I think that the challenges to all of humanity from the melting of the Arctic uh, uh, ice, it's floating ice on the Arctic, doesn't raise sea levels as it, as it melts, but it means the blue ocean is soaking up sunshine in the Arctic summer. That region of the planet is heating up at nearly three times the rate of the rest of the planet, and this is upsetting our climate systems. We're enjoying a lovely early summer here, but the climate systems of the whole world are being upset by this. But in the end, the biggest challenge is that Greenland, sitting right next to the Arctic Ocean, is likely to lose all of its ice. Sea levels then would rise by seven metres. And just to be clear, is likely to lose it on current projections or from where we are now? From where we are now. In other words, because the summer sea ice is already gone, we're probably hitting the point of irreversible loss of Greenland ice unless we step in with measures to try and refreeze the whole area. So when you talk about refreeze, it's a complete step change from, say, the language of the Paris Agreement, which is about hitting certain targets, limiting the damage, making sure that on the worst case trajectories, we level those off. You're now talking a language which is much more directly about intervention and presumably what people call geoengineering. Is that because you feel that there is no other choice now? I mean, in so, a sense, it, if we stayed on the Paris path, is your view three years on that that wouldn't cut it anymore? Let me, let me be absolutely clear about this. 
we have to cut our emissions to zero as the priority. It's not as if we abandon what we agreed in Paris. We are emitting about 45 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent every year. And to take 45 billion tonnes a year out of the atmosphere would, would cost much more than anything we could possibly afford. So first and foremost, the priority, reduce emissions to zero as quickly as possible. And just to be clear, when you say as quickly, because again, people hear conflicting messages about this, is the cutoff date 2050, 2070, or on the more alarmist potentially scenarios, 2030? California has declared it will hit net zero in 2025. That's quite a big challenge. Is it doable? I don't think it is. I think that uh, if we're talking about net zero, we've just got to remember that farming is a big emitter. There's a lot of methane emitted from the farming processes, whether it's livestock or plants. So I don't think it's feasible to expect any given country to hit net zero unless that country is able to grow a considerable amount of forest. But you can't grow forests by 2025. Well, you can't, but you could start growing forests by 2025. I guess the the point I want to emphasize is, if we don't hit net zero emissions, it's end game. Then, if we do hit net zero, we've just got to remember, we will only stabilize the temperature in about 15 to 20 years after we've hit net zero. And every process that has begun, such as the melting of the Arctic, and I haven't discussed the Antarctic as well, every process that has begun will continue. So what we need is to go beyond the net zero and see that we take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Let me give you some numbers. 270 is the pre-industrial parts per million of greenhouse gas equivalent in the atmosphere. Today, we're at 400, 410 parts per million. I believe we need to get back to 350 or less. So we've got to stabilize emissions to zero, and then we've got to pull greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. At the point where we get to zero, 410 is more likely to be what? 450 or more? I mean, so we're not talking about getting from where we are now back to three. We're talking about it could be considerably higher at the point, whether it's 2030, 2040, 2050. Let's suppose we've got good behaviour, which we haven't got at the moment. Let's suppose we had good behaviour, then I would say 450. It could go to 500. But if we begin the process of drawing down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, of course, we may not hit that sort of level. I believe that if we get above 450, we're going to get irreversible changes in the global political systems that would cause such chaos that the global economy will be destroyed. So our capacity to act might itself by that point have already been destroyed. Yes. So let me just say, why do I feel so gloomy about this? When I was in the Foreign Office, we ran a big program of work on risk analysis associated with climate change in India and China. And both countries cooperated fully with us. We had army generals, admirals, security service people on board, 120 in total, working for close on a year to produce a report. And in that report, we also brought in actuaries from the City of London insurance and reinsurance sectors. 
this hasn't been done before. To actually take a risk analysis approach, you're not saying, what is the most likely challenge? You're saying, what is the low likelihood challenge that has a massive impact on your society? And each of the two countries were very cooperative and came up with four challenges and asked the insurance people to, to work out what the risks were. And it was a big surprise. The first is rising sea levels. In China, the heaviest density of population is on the southeast coast. And so there's nearly half a billion people who are at risk from storms at sea, but with increased sea level, meaning the incursion of the water goes further. But the biggest risk in China, and therefore I'm going to say in the world, comes from their request, can you look at rice production? What is the likelihood that in any given year our rice crops all fail? And that's obviously a key to their success. And that percentage at the moment is very low. It's not at all likely. But half a degree, one degree temperature rise above the present level. And that becomes a very severe likelihood in a given year. We're talking about 1-2%, which is likely it will happen. The biggest risk is rising sea levels driving people away from their normal place of abode. And the first city that will go under is Calcutta. It's already suffering from storms at sea, giving rise to floods in Calcutta. It will become an unlivable city. And right across the Ganges mouth from Calcutta is Bangladesh. That'll be the first country that becomes unlivable. So you're talking about 160 million people looking for somewhere else to live. Both China and India have taken these analyses on in their own countries because they see this risk as a very severe risk to their future. So you've started now to use a different kind of language when talking about this. So you start, I've heard you talk about climate repair as a way of thinking about the challenge. And that, again, it's a sort of step change. So it's a, it's a way from adaptation and mitigation to the idea that we have to step in and get back somehow to where we were before. Just tell us a bit about what you mean by climate repair and what, what would we have to repair? I mean, we'd have to repair the poles, presumably. Yes. And, and that is very challenging. I think both reducing greenhouse gases from the, the atmosphere and refreezing the, the poles, both very challenging technically. But if we just remember landing a person on the moon was an impossible task that uh, President Kennedy set his, his scientists and technologists, but it was achieved. I think that we have to achieve this. We have to refreeze the poles. You think that the future of humanity depends upon our ability to refreeze the poles? I do not see how we can put up with the rising sea levels to the level of, let's say, a fraction of the seven metres that would, in other words... If we lost a quarter of the Greenland ice alone, that would be a couple of metres sea level rise. I don't see how we would survive this because every city sitting on a coastline around the world, it's not only the island nations, but all of these coastal cities, and roughly 80% of our cities are on coastlines. So I, I think... Let me, let me come back to rice. The biggest rice paddy fields in the world are in Vietnam and in the Mekong Delta. Now, there's a danger. If you get a, a rising sea levels and a storm at sea and the rice paddy fields in, uh, are completely flooded, they will become unproductive. 
they would be completely salinated and you won't be able to grow any rice in those paddy fields. So when we looked at China, we also had to look at the rest of the world and the impact on all of this, because the Chinese have got deep pockets, they'd be out on the global marketplace, I believe the global marketplace will collapse. So when you ask me climate repair, I'm saying it's going to be necessary to do all of these measures, but I'm not sure which are the key measures. So, for example, if we could bring greenhouse gases rapidly, and I'm talking about 30 years, down to 350 parts per million, it may be that we then don't need to use other techniques to refreeze the Arctic. However, I think we need to get those techniques ready and do demonstrators to demonstrate that we can do it. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As you'll know, then a big part of the challenge, we're going to move on to the politics of now, is that those two imperatives possibly pull in different directions. So one is about behavioural change and social change as well. Leaving aside carbon capture, but merely changing people's behaviour to get the amount of carbon in the atmosphere down could require dramatic political interventions. I think most people would hear the phrase refreezing the poles and think, well, that's got nothing to do with me. Like, I'm not going to, there's not a lot I can do to contribute to that. That's going to depend upon high level government spending and then the role of scientists and other experts in devising new techniques. It's going to be, for want of a better word, a very technocratic project. Whereas reducing carbon emissions ought at some level to be a democratic project. And the danger, as some people see it, is that the conflicting messages there actually make the democratic project harder because of a, a feeling, well, if in the end this is going to need a geoengineering solution, it doesn't actually depend on yeah, us. Yeah. So how do you bridge that? I mean, in a way, that's the fundamental political challenge of our time. How do you persuade people that in a world where technocracy is going to matter, democracy still matters too? I think the answer to your question is, look at what is already happening. So if we look at the, the cost of renewables to produce electricity, initially 50 to 70 times the cost of gas and coal-produced electricity. Germany, 1989, saw an opportunity for the German government and people. If we put a feed-in tariff on photovoltaics, for example, if I give you the option putting photovoltaics on your roof, I promise you that every kilowatt hour you put onto the grid, I will pay you much, much more than you would have to pay for that uh, kilowatt hour of electricity. They thought the whole world will need these photovoltaics because of climate change, 1989, and Germany would produce them. So they would have the global market. 
So that was the sort of justification for putting quite a big tariff onto the taxpayers of Germany. This created a market pull and in came producers producing photovoltaics and the price kept coming down. Britain came in in 1997 and by the year 2002 we had most European governments with feed-in tariffs. California came in at about that time as well. The net result was that the price of photovoltaics and wind turbines is now competitive with coal at least in all of the temperate zone countries. Between the tropics it's cheaper to produce new power from renewable energy than it is from coal and gas. And that includes the intermittency figures and so on. So what we see is a big potential opportunity for regrowing our economies through these new technologies emerging and becoming competitive and then using the marketplace to spread them. In 2015, even before we reached that agreement in Paris, more than 50% of new electricity production around the whole world was renewable energy. Right, so this was a major step forward. But what we don't have is a mechanism for dealing with the rate of change that is required. There's a tremendous inertia inbuilt into the system. The inertia is, first of all, physical plant. If you've got power stations that are coal-fired, you don't want to just switch them down before they have crumbled into the ground. You want to keep producing kilowatt hours and pull the money in. The second kind of inertia, more difficult, is the one that you're really asking questions about, which is human behavior. So, for example, if you happen to be a very wealthy person and you own a large number of coal mines or gas production, or if you're in the oil business, you have a vested interest to maintain that. And you will put a lot of money in, a lot of effort, into persuading governments to keep funding the work that you're doing and people to keep buying that. So we've got a kind of political inertia in the system that is very real. I mean, I'm going to say the big climate sceptic movement only occurs in the English-speaking language, and the reason is because there are two guys in the United States who've put perhaps a billion dollars plus into the anti-climate change propaganda. So it is a very big issue. But if, if your challenge to me is, do we have to take a hit on our standard of living? I don't believe that is necessary, but I can't prove this. I believe all of these new technologies that are coming into the marketplace will be worth something like three, four trillion dollars a year by 2024. And as we stimulate this new economic growth, it's clean growth. We'll be cleaning up the cities. We'll all be breathing more healthy air. We'll be living longer, etc., etc. But do you think that that can be done without large-scale government intervention now? So there's stimulus and there's stimulus. There's the stimulus that the market will generate, which will trigger among other things, behavioural change. And then there's the kind of stimulus that's talked about in relation to a Green New Deal or whatever it is, which is an attempt by governments to use their power to engineer dramatic change much quicker than it would happen under market conditions. So if you take, you know, at the moment, Extinction Rebellion have been snarling up the streets of London, getting a lot of publicity and generating a lot of interest, and people have started to focus on their demands. Um, one of their demands is tell the truth. Well, I think you're doing that. One of their demands is Britain get to zero carbon by 2025. 
which as many people have pointed out, I mean, the phrase that's usually used is unrealistic. But I think the other thing that you'd have to say about it would be massively coercive. I mean, it would involve government acting in ways that were essentially using government power to force lifestyle changes. So that's a 2025 target. Is there any way of avoiding at some point facing up to the fact that government coercion is going to be required? I'm going to try and avoid the word coercion because it, it has very negative... It does, and, I, and I'm, I'm using it deliberately yes, because yes. We, can, we can talk about stimulus and behavioural change yes. in a market context. And the other kind of change, and I'll get onto this in a bit, which is what happens, say, under conditions of war, because people have often said, well, the thing that Extinction Rebellion want would require government action on a scale we haven't seen since the Second World War, to which other people say, but that's exactly the thing that we need. Yes, I know. I know. And, and in fact, we do. We, we, we need this on a very large scale. But, and I, I think this is very important, we're not going to get a change like that in, in a democracy. Absent to war. Absent to an actual war. But I'm going to say, nor would we get a change like that in China, for example, because I've spent an awful lot of time in China. The Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party wouldn't do that because they know that their own lifetime would be severely impaired by running up against the bulk of the population. The economic growth in China is the biggest thing keeping the Communist Party in power, and they're not going to slow that down. Of course, what we need is to see if the people, the private sector, the City of London, etc., all of us, begin to understand the nature of the challenge and push our government into action. In other words, I'm, I'm going to say the democratic principle is the right way to approach this. And I think this is why I feel somewhat positive about Extinction Rebellion. I certainly feel very positive about the young Swedish girl. Greta Thun Thunberg. Yes. Or Thunberg, <laughs> a 16-year-old, is having a, a global impact. She speaks for the next generation and she's saying to us, what are you leaving us in? She's calling for a climate general strike. That's another coercive measure. You know, politics at some level does come down to people forcing other people to change their behaviour, not just waiting. Markets wait, politics forces. Yeah. And it's the fundamental question of our time around climate, yeah. which is at what point do we think we are going to have to force change? And it, you know, it can be forced both ways. So it's not just governments forcing people. As you say, it's also people, but it's forcing governments. So Extinction Rebellion are doing civil disobedience, which is one way, but it's the kind of civil disobedience we're talking about here is not on the kind of mass scale. A general strike is a huge step up from that. Uh, and I can't believe it's going to happen, a climate general strike. But people are starting to talk that language of political compulsion. My own view, and this is really why I'm positive about Extinction Rebellion and the Swedish girl, I believe that we are discussing this, and I've been on television and radio discussing it, precisely because Extinction Rebellion is getting the attention of the media that it wants. And Greta Thunberg, she has a Nobel Prize now. So, so what we're seeing is the public is being made aware of the nature of the challenge we're faced with. Now, I'm not going to suggest that all of the media response to Extinction Rebellion is positive, and we need to think very hard about that. If the actions are seen to be leading to some form of violence, 
then, of course, it's going to lead to a very negative response. But nevertheless, just raising the public profile around the issue of climate change and getting it up there in the debate is critically important. That's a part of the democratic process. Can I ask you to draw on your experience as, as chief scientific advisor, both in the Blair and Brown governments? So I was always struck by a, a passage in Tony Blair's memoirs, and I'm sure you'll remember this well. You may not remember the bit in the memoirs. Uh, during Foot and Mouth, many people listening to this may not remember this at all, but Tony Blair was planning to call a general election in May 2001, and then there was an outbreak of foot and mouth in the British countryside, and it had to be postponed. And then he describes in his memoirs a meeting with you where you came in and you you drew a graph or put up some tables showing if certain measures were followed on a particular path, this is how the outbreak of foot and mouth will be contained and eventually eradicated over a time frame. And he more or less implied that as you were presenting it, it seemed like wishful thinking. And then lo and behold, it all happened. And it happened as you described it. And in one way, it's a kind of shining example of what happens when governments take scientific advice. And he sort of says it was amazing. On the other hand, what comes across in his memoirs is the fear. (laughs) The thing that, that triggered the need to take this advice seriously was this sense of powerlessness, this sense that something had got out of the government's control, and it was interfering with the primary democratic event, which was an election. So you've got a kind of positive and negative thing here, which is that governments do listen to advice when it's good advice, and they need to be really scared of something before they'll do it. So if you go from that to this, do you think governments, I mean, governments have the capacity to listen to good advice, but are they not yet afraid enough? I mean, do we need it to, to sort of impinge on their consciousness in the way that that did with Blair, which is you're going to have to postpone an election. It's kind of it absolutely cut through. And then you could hear what you had to say. Let me just go back to that foot and mouth disease epidemic, because without that, I would never have gained the confidence of the prime minister and the cabinet. For six weeks, I was seeing the prime minister at least once a day. I was traveling around the country in a helicopter. I was really given the opportunity to make everything happen. I was given the British military to operate the whole exercise that we put in place. It was enormous. The total cost of the epidemic, six billion pounds to the economy, is the best estimate I've seen. It was enormous. It was the worst foot and mouth disease epidemic the world has seen. And it was science, as you've described, that came to the rescue. It was epidemiologists working with me, and we produced these curves. I took them into the Prime Minister. In his autobiography, you can sense the desperation. Exactly. He he says, I couldn't understand this. (laughs) But I really hoped it was true. (laughs) It was true. And we had an epidemic that was growing daily on an exponential basis. Within two days, we turned it around into exponential decay. But this was a tremendous effort to do this. And the the number of animals being culled was outrageous in order to manage this process, but necessary. So I then had the attention of government. And then, of course, I had an open door on the climate change issue. Is there a way of conveying climate change in a way that in any sense would map onto that experience because the immediacy of that is what comes across like you say it was there was almost a day a key day where Blair had run out of options 
And on that day, I remember it well. Right, <laughs> and I don't. Well, I remember. I remember the news. You know, I remember the. And there was that feeling that um, that this thing was out of control, and then suddenly it wasn't. It was, in a way, the perfect technocratic moment of politics. And what Blair did was say to me on that day, right? You were in charge, and you're going out on television and radio, not any minister or me, explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it. That gave me a voice on television and radio that I used on the climate change issue. So the answer to your question is, the first big piece of work I did after dealing with the foot and mouth disease epidemic was to to head up a program on flood and coastal defences for the United Kingdom. And this was a, a, a heavy piece of work. It took two and a half years, 120 British experts drawn from around Britain, but also from other countries like Holland. And we produced a very detailed report using the best climate models out to 2080. What would Britain look like under a business as usual scenario? And how could we manage to improve what looked like a disastrous scenario going forward? I presented that both House of Lords and Parliament itself came to the meeting. I I had a very full meeting. I was actually asked by several MPs, please don't put this in the public domain. Why? Because my constituency seems to be going underwater under your your modelling. And I said, no, the whole point is that we want to keep your constituency out out of the floods. The result of that was, I believe, getting all party agreement on climate change. Out of 650 parliamentarians, three votes against the decision to reduce our emissions by 80% by 2050 and to set up the Climate Change Committee of Parliament. So it was everyone terrified of what would happen to Britain under the business-as-usual scenario. So so there is in that story the contingency of foot and mouth produces dramatic change at the level of government. In Blair's memoirs, the the story that goes alongside it, which is the bleaker one, is the other moment of absolute terror for his government in his first term was the fuel tax protests, uh, which was another point where there was a day where he felt, and again, for people who don't remember, there was um, Gordon Brown had introduced a levy on fuel and then starting with a series of blockades of fuel depots. And in the very early days of the internet, people using the internet to kind of organise, the country was more or less brought to a standstill. And um, there was panic at the top level of government. One thing it had in common with the foot and mouth was that the solution involved the army. <laughs> I mean, it involved at least Blair threatening to hand this over to the army to reopen it. But also the you know the slightly discouraging feature of that, and it relates to the gilets jaunes in, in France, is that people can mobilise very quickly and put real pressure on government and put the fear of God into government when government tries to take action, particularly through taxation, in order to induce behaviour change. So we've seen this in France with Macron and the tax on diesel. So there's also that question there too, and it sort of relates to your point about inertia, which is in some ways if two billionaires spending money on climate scepticism can have this huge effect. It's also true that pressure on government doesn't just come on the right side in this question. It can also come from people reacting very strongly to attempts by government to change their behaviour through through taxation. And again, I mean, Blair took a lesson from that, which is you have to be really, really careful and in many ways politically risk-averse when interfering with people's belief that they have a kind of right to 
drive a car. <laughs> so you got two within yeah. you know, in Blair's first term, which was a fairly you know, happy time in some respects politically. Yeah. You know, nothing terrible happened. But these two events, the foot and mouth and the fuel tax, which in some ways are both emblematic of the challenge that we face for getting change around climate. And the army was the solution in both cases, which also gives me pause. Yes. Here's this kind of awkward conclusion I reach from that. The best way to deal with this problem is to put a carbon tax on emissions. So if you're producing electricity and you have to pay a severe tax if you're using coal or gas or oil to produce the electricity, you will be disincentivized and you'll be looking at the alternatives very quickly because otherwise you'll be wiped out of business by those who do. And the problem is that word tax is a red flag. It's a bit like the word coercion. (laughs) And it is a form of coercion. But there are other ways to do it. So, for example, the cap-and-trade process that has been introduced, first of all, in Britain 2004, we got that across Europe, and that was putting a price on on carbon, but not in the form of a tax. It wasn't recognisable. Feed-in tariffs. Instead of placing a tax, you give the utilities an obligation, and that, in effect, becomes a feed-in tariff. Today, we have different prices for different forms of power on the grid. Everything is in the private sector, but government control has to come in to see that by 2050, we're producing zero carbon from it power onto the grid. And at the same time, we have to see that the private sector still maintains its operations, doesn't go out of business. And so we put a different price on nuclear power, a different price on gas and a different price on offshore wind. And these prices can change as the marketplace changes. And in particular, what is interesting, offshore wind is now half the price of nuclear energy. All of the arguments I used to make about the need for nuclear energy are now very much weakened by this cheapening of uh, offshore wind. In other words, avoid the word tax, or you can use it in a positive way. How has the British government been encouraging people to use electric vehicles? If you drive an electric vehicle, the first thing is zero road tax. Now, road tax is a very small element of what you pay when you buy and drive a car. But the impact of putting zero road tax on purchase of electric vehicles is way beyond that very small loss of tax for the government. And soon you won't be allowed to drive anything but electric vehicles into central London. So what what you've got is regulation and obligation coming through in a way that the public can be taken along with. And I think this is crucial. Nigeria, for example, also ran into deep trouble when they put taxes on the use of, uh, of oil and so on. It's not easy to operate that way around. In India... There's a, there was a big, big surprise because what they had was a massive public subsidy for all forms of energy. And the argument was poor people couldn't afford the electricity and therefore we have to put a subsidy in. Very poor argument because the people who were using the electricity were actually the very wealthy people and the poor people were having to make do with other sources. So, in fact, what they have introduced now is a gradual removal of all the subsidies except for the poorer people. And over a period of just three years, they've managed to remove 
very heavy subsidies from the whole of India. So I'm going to ask a last question, a kind of blunt question. You've described a series of trends that are at work in the world, some of which are positive, um, changes in both government behaviour, but also market-driven behaviour by consumers, some of which are frankly pretty scary. You know, there are things that we know we didn't even know at the time of the Paris Accords about the pace of climate change and some of these effects that are no, only now just coming through, and the absence of global leadership. Do you think without something really triggering a significant change in global politics and global leadership, a kind of global equivalent of foot and mouth, if you know what I mean, something that actually puts the fear of God into politicians, that the positive trends on their own are enough? Because my feeling is that probably they aren't. But then the thing is, how is it possible to conceive of what the thing would be that would... I mean, who knows? Another American president. There might be significant political changes in India or China or whatever. But where you started, which was the absence of global leadership, and it's not going to be Britain, let's be honest, I don't think. Not at the moment, anyway. Where's the global leadership going to come from, is my blunt well, I'm just going to interpose a point about Jeremy Corbyn. Love him it's or not, hate him. It's not going to be him, is it? Love him or hate him, Jeremy Corbyn's commitment on climate change is equivalent to the Green Party. So he, he I think, would take a, a global leadership position on this. But I'm not... I'm not going to use that as, as an answer to your question. I think because the question is, is critically important. Clearly, a new president coming into the United States is an opportunity to turn this around. But if I look at all of the candidates that are beginning to emerge, I think I can only see two of them who really would push climate change to the extent that is needed. One is Bernie Sanders. And one is Bernie Sanders. And he might win. And he might win. And he might not. But he's a, a dicey candidate against Trump. But the country in the world that is now doing more on climate change than any other and is pushing for action is China. And since China is the, the biggest emitter, they are a very important part of determining the future. So I'm going to say we need to look at where economic growth is really happening today and see what is happening on climate change in those parts of the world. In Southeast Asia in general, we're looking at countries that are keen to act on climate change, very much driven by the positions of China. And in Africa, there are more and more countries that are understanding that they can leapfrog into the new clean technologies. Why should they go through the use of the dirty technologies? This, of course, doesn't include the oil-rich countries like Nigeria. But for many countries, they are importers of oil. Why wouldn't they encourage electric vehicles? Why wouldn't they encourage net zero emissions? Because all of those things are good for their economy and economic growth as well. The country I'm working in, in Rwanda, economic growth average 8% a year. It's now increased to 9%, and we're heading towards 10% a year in just a few years' time. A big part of this is removing their dependence on oil purchases. The most expensive one in the world, because they're a landlocked country coming overland from Mombasa. So what, what we see is economic growth hand in hand with moving away from fossil fuels in many of these countries. These are the areas of change that are positive. But if we look at the global situation, the West is still 
together the biggest emitter in the world. And if we don't act, we're not going to manage this problem. We all need to act together. Because the, the Chinese leadership is not seen to be a leader by the Western world, we can't depend on that, and nor do they see their operational chances in the Western world to, to take a leadership position. They're much more likely to be leading in Southeast Asia and in Africa, which is what is happening. So I, I think without political leadership at the highest level in important countries, it used to be Britain, it was Germany, for a period was the United States, but never at a very strong level in the United States. I think we're, we're seeing good leadership in California. I think without real leadership, we're not going to manage the problem. But having said that, I think we need a political awakening of the general public as well, pushing their leaders to put this on their agenda and take a serious view of it. Next week, the panel reconvenes and we're going to catch up on the state of British politics. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. I have a weakness, and that is when I'm interviewed for some television programs, ITV is one, they, they do your makeup. Huh? You're a makeup artist. You, you don't have that. Well, no, I know, but I, I, I've never had it before. Now I just sit there. And... <laughs> <laughs> like no, no, leave it on, I say, leave it on. <laughs> <laughs>And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.